If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we've got a conversation about women's roles in the Viking world with Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdottir. Johanna is the author of a new book on the subject, Valkyrie, and putting the questions to her was our content director, David Musgrove. I'm very excited about our next podcast interview, which is with Dr. Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdottir, uh, and she will uh, tell me if I've pronounced that really badly, I hope, but uh, but that's my best, best try at it. Um, she has taught at Yale University and held uh, research posts in Reykjavik and at Harvard, and she currently works at the National Library of Norway in Oslo. Uh, her research focuses on Vikings, Old Norse, Icelandic sagas, mythology and poetry, medieval manuscripts and gender, and she She's written a really brilliant book, uh, which is called Valkyrie, Women of the Viking World. So first up, Johanna, do you just want to explain a bit about your choice of the title? Um, Your first chapter is actually focused on these Valkyries. uh, You know, it it talks about them. So do you just want to tell us what's a Valkyrie and uh, and, uh, why did you choose this title? Um, Thank you for that brilliant introduction. Um, The title, I suppose, um, is something that a lot of people associate with uh, Viking women when they hear that phrase. Um, Valkyries are these wonderful, scary, strong creatures um, and famous from Wagner's operas and that sort of thing. And um, I suppose just having a one-word striking title 
uh, draws you in and then clarifying with the women of the Viking world who in some ways were Valkyries um, being strong and, and determined and uh, so on. Okay. And do you just want to, um, just for, for, for sake of clarity, just talk a little bit about uh, the, the Viking world that you're talking about here, just very quickly, what's the, what's the chronology and geography of the area you're talking about? Yes, the Viking world um, is Scandinavia and the places where the Vikings went. Um, so the British Isles, Iceland, um, Greenland, even North America, and um, then east into the, the down the Russian rivers and so on. So it's a really, really vast geographical scope. Um, and then it's quite a, a big a chronological scope as well, because the Viking Age sort of proper begins around 800, but there's maybe a few decades before where things are sort of gearing up for it. And then it ends around 1100. Um, so we, we're talking about, you know, 300 years, give or take. Um, so that the, the Viking world is a really big world and it's um, impossible to do it completely justice. But, you know, I tried to give a really good overview of the general things that were happening, the changes um, and uh, social structures and, and what people were up to at the time. Okay. So um, your, your book is, uh, is broadly divided into the life stages of a Viking woman, childhood, teenage, adulthood, uh, adulthood and marriage, pregnancy, motherhood, widowhood and old age and death, which seems eminently sensible and is a good way to approach it. Um, one thing that immediately sort of comes out of that is do we have what's the average sort of lifespan of a of a woman during this period and an area is, there, is what what sort of time period were people um uh, living to well they probably didn't always live for very long um child mortality was really high and um lots of people died kind of very young um and then old age was sort of 40s, um, which we would uh, find a little bit sad now, I think. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, people got married much younger and and life sort of goes, goes much faster in a way compared to the way we live now. But we do have evidence that people reach, you know, their 70s or so. Um, the woman who was buried in the Oseberg grave, the famous um, Viking burial, um, she she was over seventy years old when she died. So uh, you know the the they they were they did li live for a long time as well. But um, yeah. Okay, so so quite a condensed life story for 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 most of the people involved there. Um, so why now is it a good time to consider the role of women in the Viking period? Has it not been looked at much before? Is there any new evidence or sources of evidence that you've been able to uh, to, to look at or any new ways of interrogating the uh, sources that we've got? That's a really good question. Um, we have had evidence, archaeological evidence and sagas um, for a really long time, but there are always new approaches um, and then new burials and so on that are coming out as well. Um, so we understand the sagas in a very, very different way from, you know, only 50, 100 years ago, maybe. And people are using, in my case, you know, different literary analyses, um, anthropological approaches and so on. And um, gender, obviously, uh, 
being my focus, I, I think about gender in maybe a very different way from in the 80s or um, the 50s or so on. And um, then we are getting a lot of kind of new um, evidence from the ar archaeological stuff with, you know, isotope analysis and DNA analysis and so on. So trying to synthesize all of this um, evidence and all this data is, is sort of my goal here. Um, and then I, I think gender is never something that goes um, completely out of fashion, but it's definitely something that um, is really, really relevant and, and kind of topical at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it did seem like a good time to bring this book out, I guess. Okay. So um, you were just talking about the sagas in your previous uh, answer, and, and you do draw on the sagas for much of your story. So perhaps we could just have a little chat about what they were, and you could remind us uh, a, a bit about what those sagas were. So they're, they're basically, they're written um, later than our period, aren't they? And mostly they were written down in, in Iceland. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Um, they are these prose accounts um, that that are really, really brilliant. And if if you've never read a saga, I would highly recommend picking up something like Njal's saga or Laxdala saga. Um, so they are these prose narratives that are similar to novels, and um, they tell really good stories that are set in the Viking Age. Um, and they often have poetry, bits of poetry that are sort of um, embedded in the prose and they uh, sort of, s they're used almost like footnotes. So it's like the authors are citing their sources. And so we know that a lot of this poetry is probably from the Viking Age proper because um, it, it sort of can be dated that far back. And um, I won't go into the technicalities of that, but but we know that kind of these um, these poems um, they they sometimes talk about battles and and named people from the Viking Age, and there's even a runestone in Sweden that talks about one of the characters, um, Theodoric or Theodorikur, um on the runestone, and that character crops up. In a, a poem in Iceland, actually, in, in an Eddic poem. And so we kind of know that people were telling all of these stories um, from the Viking Age and then the, they were just passing them down. And then something um, happens in Iceland in the 13th century and they start writing all of this down on, on parchment, basically. And um, so we, we can't really rely on the sagas, you know, for kind of specific conversations or, you know, always characters. But we know that there's some truth in them that, um, you know, people did travel to a lot of the places that are mentioned in the sagas, and that's corroborated by archaeology. Um, also, the social structures are very um, similar to um, what was probably the, the, the fact in the Viking Age. And the social structures sort of make people behave in certain ways and have uh, subscribed to certain values and so on. And so even if they're just they're written by these 13th century people, we can kind of use them, you know, for as sources for the Viking Age, just provided that we we do it well. Yeah. 
Brilliant. And I, I've, uh, I would absolutely agree that they, they are amazing things to read. I've, uh, I've brought along my uh, well, well thumbed copy of. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but I think it's Ahil Saga, isn't it? Um, yes. Which is, uh, which is an absolute. I mean, it's not, this stuff isn't at all dry, isn't it? Ahil Saga is one of the the most bloody brutal stories you'll uh, you'll you'll ever read but but it, it you know it's great it's great storytelling for one thing isn't it so they're worth reading for that uh, if nothing else if nothing else absolutely um i've taught that saga several times and my students always turn up completely sort of bewildered and traumatized and saying oh this is like game of thrones or something <laughs> uh, um and I mean the the, the queen in Ail Saga, she is a little bit like Cersei Lannister, um just doesn't hesitate at, at screwing people over and kind of uh, yeah, and Ail obviously being this um swashbuckling kind of Viking hero and sailing all around. Um but then he has this amazing capacity for grief and vulnerability and you know, it's just such a wonderful saga yeah and that's is that's queen gunhild you're talking about, yeah isn't it? yeah so yeah. maybe we'll come back to her in a minute because there's there's, there's a couple of things that um, that she does Absolutely. and says that uh, that might uh, inform our conversation but just sort of thinking ab- about the topic of your book um uh, women in the viking world we can't just talk about women in isolation here obviously they fitted into the the wider social setup of the vikings which I guess um, a lot of people coming to this this um, this subject would would tend to see that as a patriarchal one where where men ruled the roost. And uh, you say at one point in your book that it's not altogether convincing to brand Norse society as oppressive of women. And at another point, you say that it would be hard to imagine the Vikings would have been as successful as they were if they hadn't allowed women to assert my, assert themselves. So I guess that the the first question here is 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 the Viking world a man's world or not? What's what's your view on that? I don't think it is, no. Um, I mean, when we think about Vikings, the, the kind of popular cliche is is really masculine, obviously. But um, they, I mean, for the first thing, they wouldn't have been born if there hadn't been women and uh, they wouldn't have been as strong <laughs> maybe yeah. as they, they became. But, um, but yeah, I, I just think if you take women completely out of the... Um, the narrative then you really lose a vital aspect of it um they i mean they're there they're participating in politics they're being entrepreneurs they're making the the sails that that you know enabled the vikings to sail around and they're also instilling some of the, the sort of values into them um when they're their children so i think um we we really need to incorporate them into some of the more popular narratives maybe yeah well and just picking up on that point you mentioned the sails there one of the most interesting things I've, i found you but one of the most fascinating facts was that um these sails on the viking ships you reckon would have been mm. would have taken like an immense amount of, of of work and time to produce you don't tend to think of that for sails but but go on tell us a bit about that i think you said that they would have taken a, a, a group of people a whole winter to produce one sail yes. or something like that. i i know i just I, I mean, I will be the first to admit I never really thought about this very much at all um, before I started researching the book. But um, it turns out that the sail um, is as valuable as the ship, probably. Um, and it just takes an, an enormous amount of resources um, to make one. I mean, it's about 100 square meters, maybe, um, so 10 by 10 or so meters um, on a sort of 
Viking ship, and um, the ship's not going to go very far. I mean, you can row it, um, but you can't like row it across the Atlantic. So you need a sail, and for the sail, you need you know uh, so many sheep or or the wool from the sheep, and you know how to uh, you have to know how to process the wool, and um, and then you have to weave it and it just takes so much time and so much much expertise and you have to treat it in a certain way to make it um windproof and and so um it's just a really long process and labor intensive and um expensive it's, it's um, crazy isn't it you just you just don't think yeah. of that at all do you, you no, think it's a i know and, and was this yeah. was this women's work was that was that something that, that, that women specifically would have been charged with doing um, most of the evidence, I mean, I, I wouldn't rule out that there were some men involved, but most of the evidence suggests that this was more or less a woman's business. Um, so they would have been um, the ones who were processing the wool and, and um, doing all the weaving and so on. But then there's also sort of, it's quite likely that they might have been driving the businesses, you know, organizing it, um, organizing the workers and so on and and there there are these women's graves that have like textile tools in them and pe- people often kind of think oh they probably must have used textiles uh, or used the tools when they were um alive but some archaeologists think that they were more symbolic and so would have um indicated some kind of prominent role in in the textile um business so so yes we we think that um sails or something that are not very sexy uh, when you're talking about Vikings um, necessarily uh, you, you know the, the the ships are so beautiful with their prows and everything but um, but the sail was completely indispensable yeah no it's brilliant I, I guess um, we, we talked a bit about sort of the gender makeup of, of Viking society but we should also talk about the stratigraphy of that society um, how different was the uh, the lived experience of a high status woman from that of a lowborn one of a slave? Um, and, and which sort of person are you most looking at in your book? Well, I try to give insights into everyone's lives as much as you know I can, as much as there's evidence uh, for. So, I mean, I when I talk about enslaved people, um, I try to sort of discuss a little bit their conditions from. Um, literary evidence in archaeology. So there's a really new, interesting um, archaeological study that suggests that the slaves sometimes had to sleep in, in the same quarters as the animals, and so they kind of might have been considered even subhuman. Um, and then there's this really f- amazing Old Norse poem that talks about these two slave women uh, grinding um, flour, and they they're sort of walking through the mud and the poet describes how their feet are really cold um, and I think there's some evidence that they probably weren't wearing very much clothing because textiles were so expensive that you wouldn't have given a slave very much um, fabric you know for clothing and, and uh, leather for shoes or anything like that um, and then you know you kind of get up to the more free farming class and and there's you know, a fair amount of evidence from the sagas about uh, what life might have been like for maybe a, a, a woman who was um, a farmer and maybe r- running, you know, a textile business on the side or something. And then um, 
we get all the way up to the top and, you know, again, talking about the Oseberg queen uh, or ruler, um, I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the woman who was buried in this Oseberg burial mound, uh, or, or there were two women, sorry, um, but the, I guess the focus has always been on kind of one of them having been a ruler and the other one having been sacrificed or, or gone with her in death or something like that. But, um, but the amount of, of grave goods that were put into the grave with these two women um, is just astounding. I mean, the just the lavishness of the burial um, suggests that they, they must have been um, held in extremely high esteem and had very high social status. Um, and then in the sagas, you find these kind of women not necessarily being like a single monarch, but certainly co-ruling with with uh, husbands or sons. So, yeah, I tried to give a, a big overview of what life might have been like for different people. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Shield maidens only exist in these kind of more fantastical spaces. And when you get into the more realistic uh, sagas, you know, there's not, not really a shield maiden um, among the Viking armies. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One of the things I found um, quite fascinating in, in your book, of, of many things in it actually, but was the, the section where you're talking about um, the lives of, of, of young women before they get married. And, married, and there's, a, there's a nice phrase you have that is, life could be exciting for a woman in the Viking age. And then you sort of describe um, that, that before they got married, Viking women 
often had you know quite exciting adventures um and they seem to have been quite free to travel did uh, is what was going on there is that right was there a certain stage in life that women were able to have a bit more um freedom than than they might have had otherwise well i think that's in the sagas mostly um i i don't think that women um had that much freedom on average but the sagas have these amazing accounts um, of, for example, the woman I talk about in the book, who is um, Astrid uh, Olafsdotter, the the daughter of the the Swedish king Olaf, and she travels to Norway to propose marriage to the Norwegian king, and um, I mean we don't we will never be able to know whether this actually happened or not, but it's mentioned in a few different. Um, prose accounts and so it's it's there, there seems to be something to the story and I kind of just imagine how um, astounded people must have been when she shows up with maybe an entourage and proposes to the king um, because she kind of sees that um, otherwise there's probably going to be a war uh, between her father and that king um, and then you have all the stories about these shield maiden um, who um, before they get married, they sort of have the life of a Viking and they sail around and um, basically act like men. <laughs> um, but I tried to sort of juxtapose uh, that fantasy image with the the reality, which was probably a lot harsher, that suggests that women, um, young women, were just, um, they, w- they would more or less marry the man they were told to marry and um, that they wouldn't have very much choice there and that marriages were sort of contracted to form alliances and, and um, the, the, the family would decide. Um, so I think there's quite a, an interesting um, juxtaposition between these, these stories of these women who are sort of uh, just um, flying around um, Scandinavia and then, then the more sort of realistic stories and you you mentioned shield maidens there and this idea of viking women being warriors and that's obviously uh something that's that's on people's minds at the moment a bit with various representations of of such women uh, as warriors in in uh, in modern tv and films and then we have mm. the the famous burial from burka of a woman who has been described as a warrior recently which got a lot of media attention so can you just sort of unravel that story a bit for us unpick it is it what, what is the evidence if there is any at all for for viking women actually being warriors that in in the way that we perhaps see them on our tv screens today yeah it's a huge question um really fascinating and i i could probably talk about it for several hours but um if we try to just uh, boil it down there's that famous burka grave that you mentioned where a woman or a a skeleton that has been uh, analyzed and and the dna says that this is a, a biological woman and then this person is uh, buried with all kinds of uh, weapons and tools that are um, gendered as, as both male and warrior. And then the location of the grave is also, you know, close to the kind of garrison in Birka. And so the the kind of classic interpretation of the grave before the DNA was analyzed um, was that this was a high status warrior. But um, what... What turns out is um, interesting that the 
bones don't actually have any sort of, you know, wounds and um, they're not like dense in the way that suggests that the, the person might have trained a lot. Um, so it kind of prompts a lot of questions about, you know, what is a warrior? Um, any grave with, with lots of weapons, um, does that um, just equal a warrior or does the skeleton kind of need to have signs of having fought? Because um, we also find graves where little boys have been buried, you know, in a, in a whole kit for a warrior. And, like, they obviously wouldn't have um, been using it at the time of death. But they that was maybe the role that was intended for them. Um, and then kind of thinking about the realities of being a warrior... Um, you know, you're in, in this kind of masculine war band and then there's maybe a woman. I mean, is when you don't have any contraception, for example, in, in a modern way, I mean, is it sort of realistic to think that you would have um, been able to to exist in this uh, sort of space and, and had this sort of lifestyle if you were a woman? So, so in these... Um, so in the sagas, you have these examples of these women. Um, for example, in Harvara Saga, she is an only child and she decides um, that she wants to be a Viking. And so she goes and becomes a Viking and asks her mother to outfit her um, as you would a son. And then what's really interesting is that um, the, the saga narrator switches the pronouns from she to he and this character adopts a male name, Hervardur. Um, and so you sort of wonder whether this is some kind of way for the, the narrator to talk about um, a, a person who we would describe as trans. And um, you sort of wonder whether this grave, for example, the Birka grave, um, whether that might have been, if it was a warrior indeed, uh, whether that would have been someone who would have identified as a woman or identified as a man. Um, and so there's just so many complicated aspects to this this story. And I think what's maybe interesting from my point of view, you know, having a general interest in, in the Viking Age is that... Um, for example, I found the sails so interesting and like why why is there so much focus on one grave? Um, I don't know what what you would say, um, but is you know is that some kind of the, the 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 intense focus on one grave? Like doesn't that just say that we are so interested in um, whether women can do? Um, all the, th the same things that men can do and um, does it also maybe pr prompt questions about you know why do we think that warriors are so amazing and violence is something that is powerful and to be um, maybe not admired but but sort of understood as as having agency and there's just so many different um images of these women, the Viking women, having agency in all kinds of ways, political and economic and um, taking land and traveling and so on. And so why why are we focusing so much on warriors when, you know, if, if it was a reality, it probably was a very uh, small 
uh, section of society? Um, and why isn't it cool to be, you know, an entrepreneur who makes sales and makes lots of money that way and, and gains status? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things to, to kind of think about when we um, think about shield maidens. But certainly um, in the sagas, I mean, shield maidens only exist in these kind of more fantastical spaces. And when you get into the more realistic uh, sagas, you know, there's not not really a shield maiden um, among the Viking armies in, in Heimskringla, for example, which is this um, long uh, prose story about the Norwegian kings and the kind of domestic um, struggles that were happening in Norway in the Viking Age. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, Hedging and so on. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> well, you haven't you haven't done an hour on that yet, but that's you know that's still a that's still a good summation of the situation. So thank you. <laughs> yes. for, so I suppose you don't. It sounds like you don't find these um, representations in the uh, in in the Amazon Prime and Netflix series of the of these um, sort of Viking warrior women. I, I forget. Is it Lagater in one of them? Um, mm. You don't find them very useful, if, uh, or in terms of getting people to understand this period. Well, I mean, they're really entertaining. And so if, if they get someone interested, um, then I think that's great. And then they might just want to go further into thinking about the sources that we have and how we can use them, for example. And I know that's really boring. Um, and and uh, it's... it's um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, for anyone who's interested in understanding characters like Lathgerda, um you know, burial archaeology is a big field. Um, how to use um, written sources is another big field. Um, it's it's just a really big debate, and um, and I I think it just says so much about our own society. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, can we we just talk a little bit about marriage and divorce because you brought that up um, earlier, and, and and you pointed out that marriage for for Viking women um, was not necessarily something they had much uh, say in. I think you were saying that that, that, that tended mm. to be that they would have been forced to marriage, or or their that, that a partner would have been chosen for them. And they wouldn't have had much say in it. So, it, it was that is that right? That's that's the basic story. Basically, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. what what sort of what was the what was the experience of of being married um, for uh, for a Viking woman? Was it was that was that a a good experience for them? Was it something that they sort of aspired to? Do we have any sense of that, or was it just something that, that happened to them and there wasn't really any other choice? Um, there's not a lot of career options, um, certainly apart from marriage. Um, I think probably if uh, if you at all could marry you probably wanted to because um that just uh, sort of you would have you you would gain a certain social status you would have some modicum of economic independence and so on um and you would probably just hope that you got a nice husband um but but it was really not up to the woman herself usually um the story about this woman going off to norway and proposing um, is a real sort of one-off, and most of the time the sagas just depict, um, you know, young women when they're sort of 14, 15, their father often just announces that now they're going to get married, and they do. Um, and married life itself, I mean, the 
the the sires they just run the whole gamut of of human relationships really and so you 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 find couples that are extremely harmonious there's obviously you know the the, the saga author is depicting them as as very loving and and uh, loyal to each other and then there's kind of couples who clearly despise and loathe each other but they still stay together because it's just kind of practical and um and then you have certainly um, accounts of divorce and also women kind of instigating the the death of, of their husbands even but um yeah <laughs> it's it's really a, a fundamental aspect of of life in the viking age and did did viking women have you kind of just alluded to this now did they have more or less authority or independence or agency as as wives uh, as opposed to being unmarried was it did it sort of improve their social mm. status and condition to be married uh, and absolutely did, yeah yeah, I mean, I think if 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 you're not married, I mean, most of the time you're probably a servant, um, or you know, maybe if you're lucky, you you're living with maybe your brother or something like that. But um, I mean, at least in the sagas, like literally everyone gets married um, who isn't a servant, um, and then so if you are married and you have you know, control of your own household, then that sort of gives you, um, legally, as a woman, you're allowed to spend a certain amount of money without asking your husband. And um, you're allowed to, you know, have a, a sort of say in things and you're allowed to inherit. Um, and so you kind of, you have a, a an amount of legal rights that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um and then you you can sort of involve yourself in the the politics of the family, and um, so yeah, I mean it's it's really something that that like being single is just not like a concept uh, really, in the same way as as we understand it. Okay, but then on the flip side of that, there's divorce. Uh, so let's talk yeah. about that a bit because you say in your book at one point, uh, if I've uh, uh, and said it correctly, that women could be divorced on the spot by a man. Is that is that right? Um, th- that seems to be the case. I mean, it's it's really difficult to say, you know, from from these sagas and laws that were written down a little bit later, um, you know, what actually happened. But um, th- there there are sort of so many different versions of uh, uh, people getting divorced in the sagas that it, there there must have been. Um, some cases of it, um, and then there is this example in Njalsaga where um, there's this wedding, and there's an older man, and he's kind of latching on this young girl who's only fourteen, and um, and his wife says something about it at the wedding, and just you know stop ogling her, and he just divorces her, and she gets cast out of the wedding, and you know in in the saga she's never heard of again, and. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's difficult to say whether someone would have been divorced as abruptly as that. But um, certainly, I mean, there's also a case where um, a, a woman gets out of a marriage that she doesn't want to be in by kind of underhanded tactics. And so, so yeah, it's it's like not something that's necessarily a great um, option. For people, and you know, it, it causes 
some amount of scandal and so on. Um, but but yeah, it seems to be sort of you know it's it's a fairly the Vikings were sort of quite pr- pragmatic in many ways. Um, yeah, you say, but, say at one point that you see divorce as a fact of life rather than a moral failure for, for yeah. the Vikings. So so that gives an interesting insight, I guess, into their mindset. Yeah, but like you know, there, it's not often um, an option. Like if you're a woman and you're in this desperately unhappy marriage, like what is your option? Um, alternative option i mean the you can't just like move somewhere and uh set up on your own necessarily i mean there's just like realistically um you need things like an income and uh you know just a way of supporting yourself and if you're a high status woman you're not going to you know divorce someone and go off and be a servant somewhere probably um so you kind of need the support of your family and if um for example, I take uh, this woman, Thuridir, in a saga called this, the Erpika saga, and uh, she's married to one of her brother's supporters, and so she knows that if she tries to divorce the husband, um, her brother would just not support her in that, and so she she's definitely stuck in that marriage. So um, even if, you know, it's a legal right, I don't really think that it was always... Um, you know, an option for for many women. Okay, so but in terms of financial independence, how much how much scope did Viking women have for developing financial independence? Did they did did they were they able to engage in craft and trade and entrepreneurship if if they were within a marriage or I guess outside of marriage? Yeah, I mean the the evidence um, seems to sorry the evidence suggests that. Um, that women were, for example, active in the textile industry. Um, all these these women buried with kind of textile tools and so on. And um, I mean, we don't really know, like, you, you know, when you look at a grave, you can't really know for sure whether a woman was uh, married or a widow. Um, but certainly, um, I mean, I kind of have this uh, hypothesis that maybe if you were able to um, move away from... Uh, a rural area and into a town you could maybe be a little bit more anonymous and get away from your interfering family and uh, like if you were successful in a, a trade then you probably had a lot more of a chance to be autonomous um, and independent um, but certainly I, th- I think probably a lot of women who were married were kind of running all sorts of um, you could call it uh, cottage industries um, on the side, you know, apart from just subsiding mm. um, on, on their, their farm. Okay. I've, I've still got a whole bunch of questions, but we're running yeah. out of time a bit. So there's there's one that I, that I think people are really interested in, so we're going to try and tackle that. Um, so I looked on Google search to see what people are asking in relation to Viking women, and uh, mm-hmm. it's all about uh, what they look like and what they wore. Um, and yeah. you do cover that in your book. Uh, and for some reason, people are fascinated in what Viking women wore. So... What did Viking women wear? Well, I think they must have looked fabulous, many of them. Um, They wore clothes that in some ways uh, I think appealed to us a lot today, like the silhouettes were quite um, sort of fitted, I guess not to waste a lot of fabric. Um, And then um, they had these brooches, at least uh, the kind of classic Viking look. I mean, not everyone 
everywhere all the time wore them, but um, they had these two oval brooches on each side of the uh, of their chest, like on sitting under the shoulders, um, and they would be kind of holding up uh, their dress, and the the clothes were usually made out of wool, um, and only um, rich people could afford linen. And they would probably be wearing all sorts of um, shawls and kind of coats and like rich people, they, I mean, they would be really flaunting their wealth. They would have um, lots of brooches that it was often actually stuff that was stolen from the British Isles uh, or, you know, Ireland or somewhere. They would... um, you know, pick clasps off manuscripts or something like that or sort of alter paraphernalia and then they would, like, attach a pin to it and then they would use them as brooches. Um, And probably uh, women had, like, married women would have had something covering their hair and and the the hairstyles were usually like these kind of ponytails um often with coils around the base um we we have evidence you how know, do we know all, that how do we know that yeah yeah it's really interesting i mean there's um like there's these picture stones there's this island uh, in the baltic right out off sweden called gotland and they um had this amazing tradition there that they um, ra- raise these stones, picture stones, with um, carvings that are extremely elusive, and we don't really know always what they're depicting. And there's all kinds of interpretations. But the w- women's hairstyles um, there are often used um, to kind of try to reconstruct what women looked like. Um, and they often have these trailing dresses as well. And then the Oseberg burial had uh, this tapestry in it. Um, that has some human figures. Um, and then there's, yeah, there's like various other stones that have these carvings on them. And so that's how we we reconstruct what people um, looked like. It's fascinating. Um, mm. Like I say, this is such a fascinating topic. I could I could uh, keep asking you for ages, but um, we need to kind of get to get to an end. So I suppose the question I always like to ask at the end is, what question should I have asked you? What What haven't we talked about that would have been interesting to talk about? Oh gosh, <laughs> maybe the there's a lot of people who are interested in um, Viking magic. Okay, let's talk about and, Viking magic. Yeah, love potions <laughs> and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean the the there's this um, prophetess figure that's called a, a vulva. I know it sounds like a naughty word. <laughs> Sorry, um, but uh, there's there's this kind of um like she's almost like a witch in some stories but she's more of a soothsayer and a, a prophetess in other sagas and she kind of comes and and tells people's prophecies and and like in Eric saga the saga of Eric the Red which is set in Greenland there's this scene when um there's a, a really bad spell in terms of of weather and everyone's kind of beginning to starve and be very anxious about the future and then this soothsayer woman comes and there's this intricate description of of, uh, her um, ritual and she has to have special food and um, she has like a special staff and all kinds of things and um, and then she sort of you know 
she she tells everybody's prophecy and says everything will be all right, and then everything does uh, turn out okay. Um, and then there are these women's graves uh, that have been found where um, there are these like staffs and and things that people um, can't really explain properly. So they think that they might have been um, these these ritual uh, magicians or yeah. So that's, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild to think about that, isn't it? And obviously, this it sort of reminds us that this is all in the in the pre-Christian context, isn't it? This whole story mm. is uh, is before uh, is before the, the Viking people were, uh, uh, were were converted to Christianity. So lots of lots of bits of the society that I guess we're we're always going to struggle to understand because we just we're, we're quite a remove from it. Yeah, and we're just trying to piece together sources that can't speak. And so you know, if you find a stick in a grave, like is it? A special wand, magic wand, or is it, you know, did it have some other purpose that we just is lost to us? You know, maybe it was like a, a symbol of authority, like a, you know, a scepter or something. We don't know. <laughs> Okay, one more thing, um, which is uh, slightly askance from what we've been talking about, but we, we obviously we talked about the sagas a bit earlier, um, and, and you said how good they were to read, and we agreed about that. If there was one saga that you were going to recommend our our listeners read, which which one would they should they go for? Well, I think um, Eyjafjallajökull saga is actually a really fantastic place to start because it's just um, so much fun and. It has Queen Gunnhild, who is such an amazing character. Um, but otherwise, the the saga of um, Hervor, the the shield maiden, might be interesting as well. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much for for that fascinating conversation. Um, and uh, as I said, the book uh, is called Valkyrie: Women of the Viking World. It's got a really striking cover, um, so you won't miss it in the bookshops. Um, it's on sale uh, April the second, we think. Um, and uh, like I said, it's a it's a cracking read with lots of fascinating information. You know, not just about uh, women, but about uh, things like the sales and things like that stuff you just simply wouldn't think about. So well worth reading. So uh, Johanna Catherine Friedrich's daughter. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. That was Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdotter. Her book, Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World, is out now published by Bloomsbury. You can find plenty more material on both women's history and the Vikings at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Monday when I'll be talking to Catherine Fletcher about the Renaissance artist Artemisia. Thank you.